Good evening and welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna R. Gore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this evening and every Saturday evening for enlightenment, awareness, education, and uh, entertainment, primarily surrounding the aftermath of crime. And so I want to welcome everyone to the show this evening on a lovely Saturday evening here in Connecticut. And I want to let you know that I'm flying solo this evening. Um, Delilah is uh, off uh, uh, with another commitment. And as they say, darn, darn, double darn, because I hate doing this technical stuff, but we will get through it. (laughs) And um, so this evening, I'm very happy to welcome a repeat guest and a a fine friend of mine from um, Washington, D.C. And I was so... I was so honored to have her on my show. In fact, we put up her older show about uh, from a year ago, and uh, she played host to me uh, when I was in Washington. And, um, you know, just to say very briefly, we could say uh, without being formal, she's kind of like the Encyclopedia Britannica for victim services. But, but um, <laughs> Anne Seymour um, is a very accomplished person in the in in the world of victim services she has done so many things um uh with respect to research and policy and curriculum in um a number of areas um that it would probably take me a half an hour to go through all of her credentials but uh, i will let her give give you the thumbnail sketch if she chooses um, it's just a pleasure to, to have her on this evening, and we have a very special show in that we are going to talk about freebie, freebie services that crime victims and their families and, and service providers can access, and I think that's worth more than its weight in gold. So I will just say, um, Annie, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy week to be to be with me, and hopefully I'm worth it, we're worth it, and, and, and we're ready to receive your information. So it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Don. I'm so glad to be here with you tonight. I'm always looking forward to doing your show. Well, good. It's, it, it's always a pleasure to have you. And, um, you know, it's a rare treat because you're such a busy lady. Um, and so for a backdrop of, of what we are doing um uh, this evening, I, you know, I was saying off air that I often get requests on my website for if people come to me with inquiries of many different things. And um, although I ask them, you know, if they want help with the victim impact, they might write me their whole life story. And unfortunately, we can't solve every person's problem. And perhaps we have expertise in particular areas, and then we can refer them to other people that we know. That's what uh, a lot of people do. Um, and a lot of times victims have so many issues surrounding a main problem and then there are deeper layers, and quite often they have no financial resources. I mean, I don't know if that's what you've, you've found in your over 30 years of working with victims. Many people come to us at the point 
of crisis where they just have exhausted their resources, their ideas, their energy, and their pocketbook. Is that pretty typical? Yeah, I think, I mean, you raise a really good point. People often negate the, the financial impact that crime has on people. And just being a victim alone, you know, the amount of time it takes to do, you know, reaching out to people like you or scouring websites or trying to find services, it can be very, very time-consuming. And then, of course, um, you know, we have a lot of victims who are violent crime victims. They're not aware always of victim compensation programs that can help them with their pecuniary losses. And as you know, the impact of victimization, you know, sometimes, you know, we know immediate and short-term, but it can be long-term. And so if you're dealing with long-term, you know, mental health costs, or if you lose your right. job because of the impact of victimization, um, the, the financial burden can become totally unbearable for victims. Oh, def- definitely. Are, are there particular areas that you always see coming up in terms of people not knowing not knowing how to handle? I mean, is it is it particular sectors of crime uh, of crime where you you tend to see more people just kind of at their wits' end and and not knowing what, where to turn or what kinds of, of information do do you think is 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 most needed now in uh, 2015? Well, I think you know every victim is unique and every crime is unique, so it's difficult to make generalizations because I may work with the you know I actually have been working with a woman from Indiana whose uh, car was broken into on my street. Unfortunately, it was very embarrassing for me as a DC resident, but I've spent hmm. the last uh, month since this occurred you know, just trying to get information for her from the, the police department. Um, she wasn't able to, and so, you know, for me it meant going down physically to the police department and getting a report and talking to a detective, and, you know, and I do all of this as a as a volunteer, and so it just, it, it's very, very time-consuming. And then you have, right. uh, you know, you have cases, the, the, the more violent crime cases, um, are the ones that, for me, of course, are are, are more time-consuming. And I, I mentioned victim compensation because, you know, you, you'll often read the um, story of a murder, for example, and they talk about the family trying to raise expenses to cover the cost of the funeral. And I always say, you know, and if it's in D.C., I always try to find them and say, you are eligible to apply for victim compensation, which covers the cost of funerals. And so, you know, for me, it, it's, it's it's really trying to increase awareness for victims about what services are available. And, I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we have well over 10,000 programs, both community-based and within the criminal and juvenile justice systems around the country. And it's really important that we get victims referred as soon as possible after the crime occurs. And law enforcement does a pretty good job of this, but but not always. And so, you know, you have a lot of victims who are left literally floundering, and you get a lot of the calls. I certainly get a lot of calls where they're just seeking, you know, basic advice and, and, and services on how to maneuver the, the justice process, which, again, is very time-consuming. Right. Well, why do you think, like, with, um, say, for instance, the state government or federal – why is something like victim compensation for a funeral like almost considered the best kept secret? Why is it is it just that the states and, and the feds don't put enough money into the budgets for promotional type? Of, I mean, we, we were talking a couple of weeks ago regarding putting pamphlets in all of our, our courts with regard to, to MAD and survivors of homicide and sexual assault organizations such that when you go into the court, 
you have a kiosk or an information booth with everything right there. Why is this not more, especially these days when, when crime is so, you know, out of control and, and everyone's on the Internet, why, why don't people know this, Anne? Well, I think I, I think there are a lot of there is a lot of information out there, and you raise a good point. I mean, it should be in every police department, um, in every mm-hmm. jail, because very often the victim knows the perpetrator. You know, domestic violence it might be someone they're in in a relationship with. Um, and you know, whenever I go to my doctor's office, I always leave information. But at emergency rooms, I mean, think about and we've done this for years where victims might could go for help and make sure that we have um, information there. And we've gotten, I think, we've really expanded out to, you know, partnerships with hairdressers. Um, during Crime Victims' Rights Week, every post office in the country had information about victim services. And so I think we've really right. recognized the public awareness as an issue. But I think there's a, a deeper issue here that I, through my studying and you know, my research over the years, is that very often victims do get information, but they're in such a crisis state that, yeah. you know, they will get brochures and someone will even explain stuff to them. But because of the, you know, their they, victims may become, you know, have a difficult time concentrating. They may not remember what was told to them. They're not always thinking in a linear fashion. So they may have the information and just not themselves mentally be able to, to access it. And I've, I've done that in, in when I do focus groups. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk about, for example, victim compensation and survivors will say, oh, we... We never heard about that. I wish someone had told us. And then when I describe what compensation is, they'll go, oh, yeah, I did get oh, a yeah. brochure that. So, so a lot of it is, you know, is not just giving victims information, but saying when it's a good time for you, for me to walk right. through the information, I'm happy to do that, which, which you know, most victim advocates, that's, that's what we do. We give them information, but we also do a lot of explaining because it's very, very complicated sometimes these cases that we're talking about. Right, and repeatedly, and they might put something in in a drawer because they just can't, you know, um, contend with it right then. And another thing that I wanted to bring up, uh, we had a a very unusual um, case a couple of weeks ago where um, a parole hearing was reversed that never has happened in our state. It happened to involve a career, career criminal who had killed a police officer, and Michelle Cruz, who used to be our constitutional victim advocate, was one of our main guests, and and I don't know if you know the um, the stats, but it I think it really makes a difference whether your state in ter- your state or your county or whatever in terms of accessing um, um, infra- services is an opt in or opt out because our state our state you have to go in and physically apply or check boxes or do blah 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 for you know these ten things whereas in our neighboring state of Massachusetts, you automatically are provided with a menu of services and 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 you can choose to say, "Okay, I want these, but I choose not to do this one and when you're in a state of crisis and emotional turmoil and exhausted to go have to go in and deal with forms and these systems and calling people and sending back a postcard and I think that's so like ridiculous. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that opt-in, opt-out system that states have. I, I, I actually am a really big supporter of opt-out, opt-in systems. Um, and again, it's from my experience. You know, I worked in state 20 years ago where we used to notify every single victim about the status of their case and of their alleged offender and come to find out that there were a whole bunch of victims who did not want to be notified. 
And so that was a real teachable moment for our field. And I think the, the victim notification piece became an impetus for the opt-in that really it, it really reflects and respects victims' autonomy, that it is up to them to choose whether they want information, whether, whether and how they want to access it, whether they want victim services, and it makes it a little bit more challenging for them to, like you said, you know, have to make a call, fill out a form. But it also is their choice and it's their voice, and that sounds trite, but that to me, um, I, I'm a really big believer in victim autonomy, and I really recognize that not all victims want to access services. Um, some victims just want it to go away, and so we have to sort of respect the, the victims for whom that is a, a reality. And I think that's been a, a really big driving force behind both victim autonomy and then not, you know, automatically providing victim assistance services, recognizing that some people just, they're not ready for it. They don't want it. Well, I, I now that you bring that, I mean, I can see that side of it. I was just thinking from the other side, you know, of those people that it's just an, another set of things to do at the worst time in your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, no, it is. It, it's, I, I, I gave a speech recently where I said being a victim is a time suck, and there's no other way for me to describe it. It just becomes time-consuming and all-consuming in your life, not to mention the fact that you're constantly, you know, dwelling on it and thinking about it, that the amount of time that's required, especially if you report a crime and you're a witness to a crime, you know, we have great expectations of victims, and we, we don't always recognize that. When we talk about the impact of crime, we need to recognize that time is one of those things that, you know, very few people have an abundance of, and so it's just something that we have to be more attentive to. And I think technology has made that a lot easier. That, I mean, it used to be, you know, to get a protective order, it would take a long time and a, and a lot of physical activity, and we've made it now with technology where it's fairly simple you know, first of all, to get legal assistance to, to decide to do it, but then with automation, you know, you can automatically get it. The judge signs it 24-7. You're notified when the offender receives it, and all of this happens, you know, very smoothly and very quickly. And so I think we've made really important strides. Same with, with victim notification. It used to be, you know, fill out a form, and then you would, you know, get a letter, and someone would have to handwrite the letter, and now it's all done with technology that you basically check the type of information you want and it comes to you, you know, do you want it in writing? Do you want a phone call? Do you want a um, cell phone? Do you want an email? Do you want a text? So we, we are really streamlining how we provide, you know, the basic victim services that implement victims' rights. And I think that's a, a real positive thing in our field. Yeah, I uh, well, I agree with you for those people that, have have the technology available. I mean, most people have cell phones and whatnot. But, you know, Ian, I deal with a lot of nonprofits like uh, the Q Center for the Missing in, in North Carolina, which is nationwide. And so many people who have had people gone missing or whether it's human trafficking or whatever live in a very poor county where there are virtually no resources. They do not have computers. They do not have access to things. And, you know, maybe they have to go to the next biggest city or you know, county to get to even get a modicum of good police services or investigative uh, help or whatnot. And what do you, uh, again, I'm being devil's advocate here, if you don't mind, what do you say to those so many people who have been touched by crime who don't have, who don't have either the, the technology, the wherewithal, they don't have a computer, they don't have a library near them, 
what what would they do? There's so many people out there that are crime victims in that situation. Well, I, I, I think almost everyone has a library, you know, within driving distance. And it really is, you know, fairly easy to access information about victimization and victim services with a phone. Um, we have toll-free telephone numbers and crisis lines now for virtually every type of victimization Um you know, sexual assault, domestic violence, homicide, identity theft, yep. which is a really big issue now. So oh, we yeah, have right. free numbers, okay. so there's no, there's no cost for victims to access the numbers. But making sure that victims are aware of, I think there's over 20 um, toll-free lines now that, you know, back when I started there was none, zero. Um, wow. so, so just having access to someone who sure. you know, can pick up the phone, walk you through available services, um, some like domestic violence and the, the RAIN program, they provide crisis counseling to victims of domestic violence and sexual assault and stalking. And so, you know, there is a lot out there. But, you know, if you don't have a phone or a computer, you, you're, you're, I, I can't help you. That's just basically. Right, you're you stuck. Or, or if yep, you, you live somewhere where there's no service, you know, no tower, you know, the, the service is poor or whatever, you're just going to have to go to where, you will have access, whether it is, and even if you're not savvy to find that information out, there still are reference librarians, believe it or not. When I do some of my writing, I still call reference librarians, and they're a great, they're a great source, and they want to help. So there, there are still some of those tried and true methods as well, you know, to access information. So you know, yeah. go to your public library if you if you don't know how to use a computer. Ask for help there. Go to your nearest biggest city where there's more cell towers, and you can use your your phone there. And then, you know, you, you just you have to kind of think out of the box there, or you get help from people that can help you think out of the box. You know. But um, with that said, I think it's kind of a a good backdrop um, or intro to. Uh, now, do you want to tell people a little, you know the kind of information we want to get into? Um, shortly is information that you you typically put out in your in your newsletter is it not not the missives? Yeah, I have a, a, a I think it's the largest free listserv for survivors and advocates in the country, and I basically I'm on every listserv there is practically <laughs> that relates to um, criminal and juvenile justice and crime victim issues, and so every week I sort of just collect information and put it out there, and I always tell tell people that, you know, my motto is I do the work so so you don't have to. So just putting information out about new services. There's all kinds of new publications coming out all the time. Right now mm-hmm. there's quite a bit of um, new funding because the Victims of Crime Act um, fund uh, more than tripled this year. Congress raised the cap, and so there's a lot of money at the federal level, but also the, we're going to be seeing a lot more money in the states. And so, I, you know, I just put information out that helps people understand um, what's available to them. And, and I don't put anything out unless it's free. You know me, I'm sort of a freebie queen. Yeah. So, I, you know, people well, need to know free. there's free training and free yeah. webinars and free publications and, you know, just stuff that can help survivors but also victim advocates just become very knowledgeable about our field. Well, yeah, that that is great. And I know we're going to talk specifically about some of them. Is there... Is there a way where people can peruse some of that information in general if you if you have it available or are you kind of at your at your fill about how many people can accept your newsletter? <laughs> no, no, and I know you're going to be posting my information on how to join Monday Mentoring Missives on your um, on your website, and mm-hmm. I 
there there is no limit. I think we reach now about um probably about uh I don't know, four or five thousand people nationwide and you know wow, every time that's I visit good. A state and give a, every time I visit a state and give a speech, there's you know, I will get twenty, thirty, forty, fifty new people signed up. So there there's no limit and I would encourage people to do that because um, you know, I just put out stuff that I find interesting, and uh, since I'm, you know, at a national level, I, I sort of know what's going on both in D.C. but around the country. So there's so many interesting things happening right. now in our field, and it's fun for me to, you know, summarize what that looks like. That's great. Well, I guess we could call you the the ultimate reference librarian then, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, 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 I know where I know a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, that's that's why we like to know people like you because we all learn learn a lot. Um, hey, how would you like to uh, go about this with regard to? I know we we uh, Lila and I got got a list um, that that you sent uh, with about maybe eight or ten um, specific links. Do you want to go into each one specifically? Um, and talk about what they do, and or, or you know some of the new things that are, that are coming up. I I I hand it over to you in terms of how we want to do this. Oh well, I'm happy to. I don't know if there's any on the list that you thought were of interest, but it's sort of like my most reliable okay, source for for information. So okay, well yeah, we can we can certainly go down uh go down the list uh. You were, um, and, you know, I, I reviewed some of them on Friday. Um, with respect to um, the, one that, the one that you just mentioned uh, about uh, www.rainn.org. So that has to yeah. do with rape, abuse, incest, uh, and it's a national network and has um, hotlines, Correct. Yeah, they are actually linked into um, the thousands of rape crisis centers around the country. Um, and so they are able to get victims who call in in crisis. I mean, very often, you know, just be, being an immediate survivor of sexual assault, they're able to link them directly to victim services uh, within their community, you know, people who can accompany them to the hospital to get a rape kit examination and things like that. And they also provide, mm-hmm. I think this is so interesting, um, free confidential counseling. They can do it by email or by telephone to literally anywhere in the country. And, again, this is an example where there's, you know, it's 800 number, toll-free numbers, and we try to make all these services available at no cost to victims. And one of the things about RAIN, and that's, again, one of the 20 organizations I mentioned earlier um, that, that provides um, um, free services uh, victims can access them, you know, 24-7. I mean, it's very often right. they go into crisis, you know, during working hours. So if they need to make that call at 3 in the morning, there's a trained advocate who there's can somebody uh, there. respond promptly. Yeah, yeah. It's a one, I love yeah. it. It's one of the wonderful programs. The, according to the information I read, the uh, if anyone wants to know, the 800 number is 1-800-656-HOPE, H-O-P-E, uh, whatever the numbers are that correspond with hope. And they say, you know, they have a national hotline, also an online hotline, and they partner with 1,100 rape crisis centers. And just looking at the stats, man, they had said uh, every every uh, 107 seconds another sexual assault occurs and, and that 68% 
are never reported. And when it comes to rapists, they uh, their stats say that 98% of rapists never go to jail. That's pretty daunting. Yep. It's pretty depressing. Yep. I, and I will tell you, I mean, I think about that often of all the crimes that don't go reported. And I'm not criticizing victims for not reporting. Lord knows they have their good reasons for not reporting. But there are a lot of people out there who are criminals and who are not accosted and are left free to victimize others, which is a you know real sad thing. Uh, it certainly is. And the fact that you can plug in your zip code and there's that many rape crisis centers and you can get somebody immediately. This immediate access is really the is really the key to all of these uh, because, like you say, you're going to need somebody at 3 in the morning. You're not going to need somebody at, you know, at 7 in the morning right before you go to work. Life just doesn't happen like that, right? It so, does, and I always, I, I always think of a sexual assault survivor from maybe almost 30 years ago who told me the sooner you deal with trauma, the sooner it can be over. And it's really important for, you know, victims who are listening to understand that, you know, Serious trauma doesn't go away on its own. It does require, you know, talk therapy. It requires sometimes mental health counseling and certainly the crisis intervention when you're going through the worst at the immediate or short aftermath of crime. That's when it's most important to, to get services and to be able to talk to someone. And that's the kind of thing that, that RAIN, you know, RAIN provides. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like a wonderful resource. So I hope everyone will will look at that. That's www.rainn.org. One eight hundred six five six Hope twenty four seven. Let's talk. Let's talk some about OVC with the Department of Justice because that is at least to me that that's very well known nationally. But maybe a lot of people are not familiar with the with the plethora of uh, training and services and best practices that uh, go on with them and, and what they do. Certainly, um, Will Marling was on, and, and he spoke about, you know, what uh, what what they do. And uh, But if you could give an overview, that would be good. Yeah, OBC is the Office for Victims of Crime within the U.S. Department of Justice, and I always call it the, the mothership of victim services. I mean, they are... Uh, really, I think okay. it's an important agency in terms of providing leadership to the field, but also um, with the, the VOCA funding that I mentioned earlier, and the VOCA fund comes from fines and fees levied against federal offenders. It's not taxpayers' dollars, and um, and this year, this year alone, there's over two billion dollars going to the states, and also, you know, staying somewhat at the federal level for special projects that improve crime victim assistance and also fund state compensation programs. So OVC.gov, I mean, if I don't visit it every day, it's an unusual day because I'm always looking up something. Um, Right now there's all kinds of funding opportunities out there for victim advocates, but they have really good basic information just on um, uh, what it is to be a victim of crime, what victims can expect, and how to access services. Now, one of the things that you and I have talked about many times before is they have the best um, online directory um, where victims and survivors can go and they can find victim services by where they live, their zip code, the type of agency they're looking for, you know, child protection, rape crisis, or the type of service they want to access, crisis intervention, help with victim compensation. And so by filling out a few fields, they, you know, they get kicked out a really good list of resources 
that are close to them, and then also some of the, the national resources that, that we are talking about. So, um, you know, that's one reason to visit OVC. OVC also sponsors um, the, the national, every year in April, it's National Crime Victims Rights Week. And as we were right. talking earlier, it's really important to generate public awareness about victim services. So each year, OVC puts out um, a resource guide to help uh, local programs and communities promote Crime Victims' Rights Week, which is really when we get our, you know, our big push on educating people about crime victims' rights and crime victim services available across the country. So another reason to visit OVC. And then they've also got a, an amazing uh, resource library that has, uh, you know, both historical documents, but a lot of uh, the, the recent stuff on evidence-based practices and um, a lot of the research and a lot of um, training resources are available um, by just going to their publications directory on their website. Right, and and you can you can also become a consultant uh, and presenter with them if you go through the through the process. Yes, they have a, um, a training and technical assistance, and that's ovctech.gov. Um, right, and that's which, which I'm a part of. Yeah, where, yeah, that's mm -hmm. where people can. Find a consultant, um, and they provide free training and technical assistance, um, or become a consultant where they, if they have an area of expertise or an area of interest like, um, you know, crisis counseling, restorative justice, there's a whole range of things that you can sign up for. You can become a, a paid consultant working for the Office for um, Victims of Crime. And the other thing that they have put out that I think is pretty fabulous is there's a lot of online training available at ovcptac.gov, and that is... Um, uh, you know, they have training now for uh, sort of basic boot camp training for crime victim assistance. They have specialized training for sexual assault nurse examiners. Um, they're putting out some really good resources to help victims with disabilities, which is a, a significant area, certainly a growing area in my world, um, where it's, you know, more difficult with victims who are deaf or have physical disabilities to yeah. be able to access services. And so, you know, I always tell people, just go and find an hour to float around, you know, this website in particular, ovc.gov, and you'll be amazed mm -hmm. at the, you know, the range of resources that are, are available. Right. Well, it, it, it does my heart good. As a person with a lifelong physical disability, which I, I seem to ignore most of the time, but it does play a role sometimes. And although I didn't become disabled as a result of uh, the crime victimization, it, it still plays a part in life, and I think... You know, I have areas of expertise there too. So, who knows? Maybe, maybe I can lend a hand one of these days in in that area if they're looking for people. Hint, hint. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a great. Yeah, yeah, really. So, you know, you, we're talking about the mothership, and and that's great because OVC really is. But then, you know, the National Center for Victims of Crime was an outgrowth of a particular family tragedy, and they're based in uh, right the. Uh, Honey Von Bulow case, isn't that correct? Years yeah, back? I'm actually a, a co-founder of the National Victim Center. Um, back in, the, in between the first and second trial of Klaus Von Bulow, um, yeah. he was uh, accused of trying to attempting to murder his wife, who was the heiress, Sonny Von Bulow. I met the children um, of uh, Sonny Von Bulow. They actually came to a, the National Constitutional Amendment Conference we were hosting in Washington. And they asked me for help um, on their trial, which we provided some really good advocacy for them. Um, and I don't know if people recall, but they weren't even allowed to be in the courtroom. They basically watched the trial from the CNN. You know, this is 
than 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. Right. They watched, they watched the trial from the CNN band, which was kind of crazy. Um, but anyhow, yeah. they, they gave us quite a couple of us quite a bit of money to start what was the Sonny Von Bulow National Victim Advocacy Center, which is now the National Center for, for Victims of Crime. And, and they also have, you know, just remarkable um, resources for victims, including um, they have a, 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 if you're an attorney and you want to specialize in victim services, they have like a victim's rights attorney bar association, which is super cool. And then they also run the National Stalking uh, Resource Center. And that's, you know, it's one of those tricky crimes oh, that I will tell you, I mean, I, it's, it's, I, I have dealt a lot over my career with stalking victims. And it's one of the most frightening crimes and um, often crimes that, you know, go on for a very long time. And so they have great resources available from the, the Stalking Resource Center. And um, in the last couple of years, they focus on one of my favorite topics, which is victim restitution. I call that mm-hmm. the black hole of victims' rights. And so um, they put out a really good resource guide for victims to, you know, help them think about restitution and for systems to be able to be a little bit better at, at managing restitution for, for crime victims. So it's another just a, a, a great resource, and they do an annual training conference. This year it's in September in Anaheim, California, where I grew up, so I'm very excited ah. to go home. Um, and it's, it's a oh, really good training great. Yeah, and there's you know about over a thousand people go, so it's great networking to learn more about victim services and also you know providing really good training for um, for victim advocates. Right, and uh, all of it just just to say maybe it's obvious or it isn't, but OVC and Nova and POMC and all of this, they're they work collaboratively, don't they? They don't work at cross purposes. I mean, one might might specialize or or focus on on one area more than another but is don't they all in the you know in the final analysis work together yeah i think um, you know nova and ncbc are the two more of the generalist victim assistance organizations right. so yeah, they deal with all types of crime and victimization. But I will tell you, even the specialized group, the groups who represent children's advocacy centers, RAIN, National Network and Domestic Violence, Parents of Murdered Children, at the national level in particular, we really work together on uh, a lot of policy issues. And as you know, we have a, so proud to say, we have a, 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 a Victims' Rights Caucus um, in the mm-hmm. U.S. Congress. And um, so... That's where we really come together. There's an advisory group representing all the national organizations where we look at, um, you know, federal legislation that affects much of what's going on in the states. Most recently they passed an incredible human trafficking bill. But we also look yeah. at, um, you know, funding, whether it's uh, VOCA, VAWA, FITSA, there's all kinds of federal funding that we're always out there trying to, you know, protect and increase, protect and increase to make sure that the funding streams remain available. So nationally, we are kumbaya. We are like one big happy family. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, is is that is that the operative term? I mean, has it been, and how is it right now? You said protect what you have and increase the funding. Is that what, you, you know, when you go, is that what you're looking for each and every year? And if you don't get cut, you go, phew. Yeah, no, no. We, I mean, this year was unusual that the VOCA fund, yeah. um, you know, literally tripled. That has never happened in my lifetime, which is, you know, the lifetime of the victim assistance field. And a couple. And years why did ago, that happen? Why? Uh, why and how did that happen? Uh, well, because I think part of it is that there's almost 14 billion dollars over the cap, and you know, Congress, when the VOCA fund was set up, 
I think I believe Congress was smart to set a cap so that if collections were down one year, victim services yeah. would not down victim services funding so that you know it would would uh, always have consistent funding. But you know I don't, I don't want to say fortunately because it means a lot of federal crimes are being committed. Most of them are civil crimes. Um, right. But fortunately, there has been no shortage of funding, and so. You know, when you look at the federal budget and you have $14 billion sitting there, um, you know, for mm-hmm. for me it became an issue of protecting that money and not letting it go to things that weren't victim-related, but also mm-hmm. to have, you know, what's now called the valve, where they did increase funding this year, which is, a, you know, very, very exciting, that there's going to be increased opportunities for a, a, a lot of And I, 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 again, I tell people to go to obc.gov because, Right now, at the top of their website, there's probably 40 solicitations for really exciting victim-related projects. Well, you know, I'm going to go there for a couple of reasons. Um, hey, is this money going to be doled out in, you know, like they're not going to turn on the faucet full force? Is it going to be doled out little by little, or how how are they going to do that part of it? No, there's um, this year, I think it's $2.3 billion that's coming down the pike instead of about seven hundred and fifty million. So um okay. at the at the state level it's all done on, you know, based on um formulas that have been pre established in the VOCA statute, both for mm-hmm. um victim compensation, um which goes to help victims uh you know with, cope with the pecuniary the financial losses resulting from their crime. And then about forty four hundred, I might be off by a little bit, forty four hundred programs receive VOCA funding for direct victim services, um, which mm-hmm. is just completely awesome, and so I think they're, they're going to see a really big increase. And what, what states are doing now is they have to come up with kind of planning for how they're going to spend the money, and there's going to be a lot more training going on. That's sort of the area that I'm focusing on is helping people think about the types of training we're going to need with a lot of new victim advocates out there. It's a very, very exciting time. I was at a couple conferences this week, and everyone is just, you know, it's a great time to be in the justice system and in victim services because, there's a lot of justice reform going on that's exciting, and there's a lot more funding for victim services, so yay. Are, are the, is everyone doing uh, uh, training on the, I mean, I know training on the web is increasing. Uh, because of, you know, maybe nonprofits' budgets or states' budgets, are, are the actual getting together at conferences, is that kind of going by the wayside and they're, they're trying to push toward everyone being trained online and or, you know, train the trainer, we can only send one person, so then you go back home and you train your people, that kind of thing? Well, I think that there's a big push on train the trainers, which I, I'm a big believer in, and a big push for online training. But almost every state still has a victim assistance academy um, that mm-hmm. provides – I love the state academies because they're state-specific. I mean, the laws in Connecticut, you know, are very different from the laws where I live in D.C. And so um, I, I, I'm – I'm guessing, and I don't know, that with the increase in funding, we're going to see a considerable increase in um, training, and in particular, training of new advocates. I mean, if I was in college right now, I would want, you know, to become a victim advocate, because I know there's going to be steady work, you know. <laughs> for, crime's never going to go away, and the funding's looking pretty good right now, Donna, so it's a good time yep. to be well, for this thing. I'm a little biased, but my, my because of all the work that I've done with so many people in grassroots organizations, I mean, it's fun. I think it's wonderful, and we need all those new people that want to go to college and become a crime victim advocate. But the way I came up through it was my dad's homicide. 
it's a whole different mindset, and it's a whole different way we approach, and and we have more of a stake and a heart in, in, in it if we, we have come through as a result of our own victimization. And, I mean, I don't know what the stats are in terms of how many people are, quote, unquote, college-trained victim advocates now versus there are so many, many nonprofits, and I've heard something like a, there's, a, I don't know how many more thousands of nonprofits that are getting status just to, you know, just to be out there and get money. But I, what do you have to say about that? People that are trained to become a college, college-educated victim advocate versus those that, that open their own um, nonprofits or those that work for others and start from the grassroots level. I mean, it's it's different. No, it, it's absolutely different. And I think, uh, you know, very many, very many organizations, especially community-based nonprofits, are started by survivors themselves. And that's been where, as I think you know, I put a whole lot of my focus across my career has been helping organizations um, get going. And, and, you know, it doesn't require a college degree to be a victim advocate, but it does require a lot of knowledge. And it's interesting because it's hard to tell a victim that because you've been a victim of crime, you know, first of all, it's really important that you deal with your own victimization before you even think of helping others. And that's where some survivors the mark. They right away they want to start a foundation or a group. And I have dealt with so many victims who they themselves or their organizations have crashed and burned because they simply weren't ready. And then I will tell you, Donna, uh-huh. as a field, we really recognized this when we were developing the state academy training programs. And uh, I, I, I do a lot of state academy training, and I'm guessing maybe half or even more people who go through the training um, don't have college degrees. It's you know, they, they make themselves be survivors. You know, college degree is not required. What is required mm-hmm. is really good training about victim services, about the research that informs our field so that we, you know, do no harm to victims is very, very important, and that, you know, people be aware of how to help victims and how to make referrals for victims. And so we've geared our training and even the accreditation program that NOVA and others run, um, it doesn't require that you have any kind of degree. We were, we were very very sensitive to that, and I think that's a very smart thing that we did. Um, We were very, very focused on uh, the fact that a lot of people, as you said, come into this world as survivors, and that is, you know, to me, it is a badge of honor and dignity, and we we respect that. We we really do. But we also, I'm I'm always the one telling uh, victims that you there's a lot to learn about being a victim advocate. It's a lot more than just your own experience being a victim because every victimization oh, yeah. is, is is very very unique. So I'm glad we're having this conversation because I I I am so grateful. You know the power <laughs> of the personal story in the victim field is what has driven our field, and that's why our field has grown because survivors like yourself make a conscious choice to help others, and that is the beauty and strength of our field. And I, I'm, I'm all for it. I just think it's what makes us very, very different from any other, um, you know, any other calling. It's a calling. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, and it, I'm, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation as well. And, you know, you, you always have an open invitation to come on and, and bring any other issue, you know, uh, because we, we always learn so much. And um, I'm going to get back to Washington one of these days, too. If there's something yeah, going on, I'll be there. So you just invite and me. And I want to mention sure. there's one other, there's one other sure. um, 
resource on the list that I sent you. And, you know, for your listeners, yeah. there's so many that we are going to be We have about available. 16 minutes or so to the show. So, we, you know, we have about 16 minutes left just to let you know. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to talk about the one that I use because um, I work a lot in um, – not the, the direct field? victim assistance. I, well, I've been doing, you know, the victim assistance I can probably do in my sleep because I've been doing it a long time. But a lot of yep. times I, I help nonprofit organizations with things like strategic planning and how to do a needs assessment and things like that. You know, the basic um, how do you build a good board of directors. And so I really encourage people to visit. Um, you can just use any search engine and put in free management library, which is the the, the uh, URL is managementhelps.org. And I have been using right. that literally since I was one of the first early advocates on the Internet. Um, I've been using <laughs> this website for over 20 years. And you could go there and, you know, put in strategic planning, put in organizational development, put in how to do a training outline. And not one, but 30 things will pop up that are just great articles you know, nothing is too deep. Um, and I've done a lot of my, I think, best writing and thinking by visiting the free management library. And I, I encourage especially, you know, people who are survivors, who are new, who don't have experience running an organization, this is my, uh, you know, my golden treasure trove of resources, particularly for for nonprofit organizations, but also, you know, for, you know, for the government-based victim advocacy programs. Oh, that's that sounds like a, a really good resource. Yeah. Uh, so uh, essentially, you've got sort of a roadmap for you know whatever it is you want to do if you want to get started or improve what what you have, right? Exactly. And you know, there's all yeah. all different levels of of reading, but it's just I don't know. They probably have two hundred, three hundred topics. Some of them might you know I learned about new topics just by reading that there was such a topic. So. It's been, for me, uh, you know, very, very instrumental and instructional to me in uh, really a lot of organizational development, which is, you know, it just makes our field stronger. Oh, yeah, it it, it definitely does. So that's one that you need. And and so it would be uh, http slash managementhelp.org for all of you who are listening live or on the archives to come for that one. Um, You know, I think some people may – do you want to uh, – I, when I was looking toward the the Marshall Project, it looked sort of had a journalistic bent to it. Um, can can you tell us? That, I mean, and they had a whole series of blogs from different contributors, or I don't know if it's a certain certain um, journalist that contributed to that. But I wasn't totally clear on on what that was. It is. I will tell you. It's a. Uh, it's. I, I don't wake up in the morning without reading my email from the Marshall Project, and that's the truth. And I jokingly have told uh, Bill Keller, who's one of the co-founders, former editor at the New York Times, that I'm his PR agent. Um, the Marshall Project is a free daily news service that takes, um, does really good summaries of you know what's sort of hot in criminal justice news, including um, high-profile crimes. They did they did an incredible job of covering. Uh, what was happening in, in Ferguson, Missouri, and um, certainly in, uh, more recently in Baltimore. But they also do yeah. have really good analyses of things like um, the death penalty. Um, they're doing a lot of focus on my, my work over the past five years has been in, in justice reinvestment, you know, significant justice reform at the state level. And so they've mm-hmm. been partners with us on, um, on, on just putting information out. So it's sort of like a, 
um, the best writers in the criminal justice field come together to, um, uh, to to put information out on a daily basis. And so people can go to themarshallproject.org and um, just uh, sign up for their to get their daily their their daily newsletter that literally has five or ten articles. Um, right. Related to justice issues and very much, uh, very often victim issues as well. And extremely well written, a lot of good opinion editorial columns. I, I love it. I'm sort of a junkie for the Marshall Project. That Yeah, it did look really cool. And I think I'm going to look there because, you know, I put up at least three different posts in the morning about about 5.30 to 6 a.m. before I go to work and the same thing when I come home. So that would be a good a good resource as well. And uh, um you know, I don't know if uh, we want to get into a little bit with regard to if people understand the concepts involved behind uh, trauma-informed care, the National Center for Trauma-Informed Care. Can, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think you know, people, are, that's sort of the buzzword of today, a trauma-informed care. And it's a little bit of what, what we discussed really earlier, Donna. It means that you understand there is an entire biology, psychology, and neurobiology behind trauma. It's not not just holding someone's hand and trying to be helpful. That there is, you know, there are physiological reactions when people go through trauma, um, and that we, when we, when we're trauma informed, it's that we take the time to really understand trauma and its impact, and the fact that it's different on people who, uh, you know, based on their age, based sometimes on their gender, sometimes on the the type of crime that they have. Um, that they have endured, and so it's it's understanding that. And I would encourage people to go to um, the the National Center for Trauma Informed Care, which is sponsored by the Department of Health and Human Services. And you know, if you only read, I think they have six guiding principles on trauma informed care. Yeah. Really, quite quite good. I mean, it's quite instructive. And I think for victim advocates, it's important that we recognize. Um, trauma-informed is meeting the victim where the victim is. And as, as we have discussed today and many times in person and on the phone, you know, every single victim is unique. Even if, you know, you, know, you have a dozen rape victims, they're all going to be different and have different needs and be at different, you know, spaces and places in their lives. And being trauma-informed means meeting them where they are, not requiring them to come where we are, which is, we, you know, we have a tendency to do, oh, we have great victim services, come get them. It, it's not. It's very. It's personalizing what we do to to every single victim and to their unique trauma. And that's a real high level look at trauma informed care. But you know, it's just something to consider. Right. Um, with regard to some of the key principles, when I was reading about it, just just as a kind of a guidepost, uh, some of them are in terms of what they they deal with conceptually and in directly, safety, uh, trustworthiness, and transparency, peer support. Uh, collaborativeness and mutuality, empowerment, voice and choice, uh, uh, cultural, historical, and gender issues. So I think you kind of touched upon all of those. So it really sounds like you're looking at a person or a situation holistically, aren't you? That's I mean, actually very well said, Donna. No, it is. That's, that's exactly what it is. It's being very holistic and tailor-made, I mean, recognizing, again, the unique aspect of every uh, type of victimization or every type of trauma. It's not just victimization trauma. It can be any kind of trauma that, you know, a, a, who a person is and what their background is is going to affect how, how or if they're able to cope. So being trauma-informed is just, I don't know, I, I don't think you can do victim services without being trauma-informed today. You can, certainly can't do them well. No, that's true. And 
So the link there is http www.samhsa.gov slash nctic. If people yeah, or people can just look, if, if people uh, Google nctic, it pops right up. It pops right up. Yeah, because that's and kind that's of a National long Center up. for Trauma Informed Care. Right. Right. Um, we, you know, we, we still have some time. Uh, if you, we, would you like to talk about the public safety performance project with, with, with the two charitable trusts? That's another one you have. Yeah, no, that's a that's, do that that's where I spend about half my time nowadays. And um, like I said, there have been a, a number of states that are looking at significant justice reform. Uh, among them uh, what's called justice reinvestment, and that's using really good data available in every state to make decisions about who needs to be in high-cost prisons, who can be more effectively supervised in the community. And you take the cost savings from not having so many prisons and reinvest it into um, things like offender treatment, alcohol, other drug, mental health treatment, um, you know, a community-based supervision for offenders. And in a lot of states, most of the states I've been in, uh, there's quite a bit of reinvestment also into victim services. Um, and so it's sort of a, a, a unique way of looking at justice at how we can spend our money um, smarter with the end result being less crime and fewer victims. And, you know, the states that have de- decreased their prison populations have also decreased their recidivism across the board. There's been study after study which is kind of remarkable when you think about it. So, it, you know, it's the people who need to be in prison, trust me, remain there. Um, but there are a lot of people, uh, low, lower-level offenders, nonviolent offenders, who do not be, need to be taken up prison and jail space. And so those cost yeah. savings, again, um, are, are used for community-based programs for offenders, but also for victims that, that make a, a, a real positive difference. Or the, the white-collar crime. I mean, there were some... Very glaring exceptions in the state of Connecticut, where the the, the programming uh, they they let out you know a couple of people that went to to murder other people, and it was very high level and very controversial here. But so it remains a point of contention with a lot of people in terms of how these programs are. I, I always thinking of like who does the selection process here. I think it comes down to that. I agree with this in principle, but when it comes down to you know who who should we keep in and who should we let out? And you gotta you know you gotta again look at the prisoner holistically. Look at Dr. Bill Pettit and you know the the two people that slaughtered his family and they were in a halfway house. When you look on paper, they didn't do too much, but if they didn't, you gotta go back and you gotta really examine these people before you let them out. That's my little speech. <laughs> no, I, I and I. No, I'm glad you gave it, and I, I will tell you, we, we have incredible um, actuarial risk assessment tools now that give us a pretty accurate indication of um, who is most likely to commit crime again. Um, and so being able to use these tools uh, both, uh, you know, for pretrial release, which is another big issue I could spend a whole hour talking about, but also uh, release from um, prison, uh, using risk assessment tools that, you know, give us really good information. And, and the other thing, and I'm a very big supporter of, is, is mandating that people who are returning to the community from prison, um, I don't want them maxing out with no supervision, and that happens far too often. So yeah. justice reinvestment in a lot of the states, it requires uh, people returning to the community that they serve, 
you know, 180 days of their sentence in the community to help them adjust better. And there's a lot of programming. You know, you don't just give them a, you know, a pair of jeans and a pat on the back and $200 anymore. You actually give them help in reentering the community. And at the same time, in a lot of states, they're helping the victim prepare for the person returning back to the community. So, you know, a lot of stuff is going on that I think making a, I just think it's a real positive difference in how we, you know, how we do justice. Yeah, because people aren't, and then we're looking at a lot of people. I'm going to a reception at the at the Mark Twain Museum of a man that was wrongfully incarcerated for 18 years here, and he's written wow. a book, and we're going to do a show on that um, in one or two weeks, James Tillman, just to let people in. We're doing a lot. We're doing a, a really cool show on um, uh, the Baltimore Guardian Angels are coming on to talk about, about what they've been doing in Baltimore. And so we have some really good shows coming up, too. But, that is um, awesome. Isn't it? So, hey, you you, yeah. you got you, you to look look at what we're doing, and we'll keep up with your message. But I want to ask you, we got, I think, maybe three minutes what would your answer be? You know, I, I do a lot of looking at um, public affairs shows, what's going on with with our government, and you see a lot of, uh, you know, they have it televised when, when people go in parole hearings. And more often than not, you know, you're supposed to do this laundry list of programs before you can get out. And for some people, they're waiting one and two years before before there's enough room for them to get the programs that they're supposed to get before they can be let out. How do we address something like that? Well, I think part of that is using the money. Uh, that's a good justice reinvestment question. That you, yeah. you, the money that you save, you put into programs that reduce recidivism. And again. Um, you know, you can go to crimesolutions.gov. There's a lot of evidence-based programs out that we know really work to help people not commit crimes again. So putting money into, as you know, alcohol and other drug treatment is a huge one. Um, job training is, is, is huge. Um, you know, basic education, a lot of these people didn't graduate from high school, and one of the best predictors of, you know, reducing crime is someone who's educated. And so putting money into right. the very basic things that, you know, Frankly, a lot of them don't have the funding for it now. That frees up funding for that exact type of service, which I think is pretty awesome. Right. Well, you, you know, I, I think uh, you're so you're so right, and I can still see even after 30 years, like like with me, we have we still have the passion, and every day we're there beating the drum and doing what we can do. But I uh, is there anything that that's up up and coming that you, that you're you're really working on for the future? You want to tell people about and perhaps give some contact information if they'd like to uh, keep keep in touch with, with what you're doing until the next time you return? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of it now is really trying to help the stakes with training is one big issue. And um, an area that I'm just in the last, I don't know, three or four months gotten very involved in is um, pretrial justice reform that looks at um, how we make decisions about who is released from jail. And so, you know me, I'm just trying to be the, the victim voice in that. And I recently joined... Um, the board of the Pretrial Justice Institute here in D.C., a really good national organization. Um, yeah, and they're letting me, you know, really bring the victim's voice to the table. So I'm really very happy for, for that opportunity. And I think it's sort of the last horizon in the victim's world. We've done, you know, law enforcement, courts, institutional and community corrections, and even the appellate level, we've done re- very good with victim services. And pretrial, we, we don't have much of anything. So I'm very excited to 
you know, maybe be a pioneer in that field. So maybe a year from now I can come on and talk about that. Oh, my God. Well, well, that sounds very exciting. But I hope in the meantime you'll, you'll keep in touch with, with me and, 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 and with us. And um, so uh, I'll have to, uh, we're going to have to close out the show for now. And I, I want to say thank you, thank you so much, Anne. It's been a real pleasure, and we're going to have the show available in the archives. Uh, so that everyone can listen to it repeatedly, and I encourage everyone to go and, and look at these free resources and contact us, and we can get you in touch with uh, people that you need to. So, again, thank you so much, Anne, and uh, have a good Saturday evening. Uh, you everyone. do as well. I love okay, being and, and so we meet, yeah, until we meet again. Thank you, Donna. You're you're. You're welcome. Um, Good night, everyone.